All right. Uh, I want to, first of all, I guess, read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Then I'm going to ask you to turn in that yellow packet of paper to the fifth page. I'm going to make a couple of comments uh, about genre, literary genre. Now, as I bust out that word, I'm, I had the best experience at our Grace Group last Sunday night. They always say stuff happens at Grace Group that doesn't normally happen anywhere else. Well, I want that to hopefully not be true. Somebody in our Grace Group, that was Bryce, uh, came up to me Sunday night in my house and he said, I didn't know what you meant. I'm paraphrasing. I didn't know what the word eschatology meant. And, and he was going to ask the question in class, but he didn't want you all to think he was stupid. So I just want to confirm to everybody that he is stupid. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I am stupid, yeah. but I wasn't in Grace Group. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't you? No. Well, maybe it was Peter. Maybe it was somebody well, else. <laughs> well, who's stupid here? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was you. Maybe. Well, I forget who it was then. We uh, talked about it Wednesday night. Okay. Who else was it? Was, uh, who else here was in it? Florida. Uh, the David, David Essery. David Essery. That's who it was. Well, anyway, my point is, uh, he, he asked me, he said, I didn't know what you meant. And he said, I didn't want to ask it in class because I didn't want to look dumb. Well, that's my fault. And I own that. And I was so happy that he said that. And I want all of you to realize, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing up here half the time. And so if I say something that you don't understand, I would, I would encourage you for the sake of everybody else to just say, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, probably I'm going to say, you know, I don't either. And then we'll all just try to move on. But uh, this is really the opportunity for you to do that. And I'm really mindful in this, particularly in this class on Revelation, that uh, this isn't just about saying a lot of stuff about the book of Revelation. This is about helping you connect with this book. That's really my burden, even though it may not seem or sound like it. That's really my burden is to preach and teach this book for you in your life. And I, I, I think that you will be able to get that out of there. So uh, for David, who isn't here, for Peter, who is, for Bryce that would have asked the question, had he been there, <laughs> eschatology, and I, I said this the other night, uh, doctrine just means teaching. Theology is a kind of more formal term for doctrine. Specifically, theology, you know what biology is. You know what psychology is. Uh, theology is the study of God and everything related to him. So that's the big banner. I need a whiteboard, theology. And then uh, systematic theology. How many have been to Dr. Young's systematic theology? All right. That is going to the Bible and taking all of the information, or a lot of it, all of it about God, and, and putting it in a category. Everything the Bible says about Jesus Christ, putting that in a category. Everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. You actually just heard, if you were in the last hour, you heard a theological message on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Doctrine and theology are synonyms. Uh, systematic theology is like going to Lowe's to buy a plant. 
If you go to Lowe's to buy a plant, they got all the azaleas over there. They got all the perennials over here. They got all the Christmas trees over there. They have everything arranged according to its category. That's what systematic theology is. It's taking all the information in the Bible and putting it into categories like a nursery categorizes plants. Now, scholars, you know, because they, they're such as, you know, I mean, the Bible was written at least 2,000 years ago. It was written in Greek. Uh, it's been translated into other cultures. It, 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 the, the, the thinking about God is such a great endeavor that people have been doing that ever since. People in Germany, people in Italy, people in France, English-speaking peoples. And so they, a lot of times, work in other languages. And so they develop some highfalutin ways of talking about stuff. So branches of theology, theology, the doctrine of God, Christology, is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Pneumatology, pneuma is the word for spirit. Uh, Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Soteriology, because it comes from a Greek word for salvation. Soteriology is is the study of salvation and on and on. Anthropology comes from the Greek term anthropos for man or human. It's the study of men. And then you get to the end of the, all, all these systematic theologies. We have eschatology because of a Greek word, eschatos. And it just means the end, the, the last things. So the study of the end, the study of the last things is called eschatology. It is a branch of theology. Now, these guys that teach this stuff in seminaries, they, they teach all these different classes, and they write these big books on systematic theology, and they're very edifying to read. You just heard Dr. Young talk about, you know, a lot of people poo-poo doctrine, but when you read it, uh, Peter just bought, and I'll, I'll explain this in a second, he's starting to read a little bitty paperback book, what is it, 20 things? that Christians ought to know, 20 things that Christians should read. And by the time he's done, he's going to feel more confident about his faith. It's going to be more well-rounded. Um, and so these guys write these systematic theologies, and then they condense them you know, into college textbook-sized books or even, even smaller. I am an increasingly uh, uh, motivated advocate of intermediate Christians, many of whom are in this room, some of you would be advanced Christians, I think it's a very good thing to to buy a manageable, understandable, systematic theology and just kind of work your way through it. Because then you have fewer hobby horses, you have more humility, and you have a greater, more accurate concept of the Christian faith as a whole. And it's a big whole. And uh, it's, a, it's a great endeavor to, to, you know, let somebody guide you into these different topics of, of the Bible. All right. Uh, so now I want to talk for just a minute about reading the Bible. And that's what these yellow pages are. And I told you last week, I'm not going to go, we're not going through all of that. It's for you if you're interested. But all of you uh, have some kind of sensitivity about reading the Bible. 
Some of you are reading it on a regular basis. Some of you feel guilty because you're not reading it on a regular basis. Some of you should feel guilty because frankly, you just neglect the Bible. You just go about your life and you don't ever pray very much. You don't ever read your Bible very much. And that's a really bad thing. It's like not eating. It's like not eating food. Uh, the way we grow as Christians, the way we walk closely to Jesus is by doing the kind of things that nurture our life in Christ. Bible reading is the number one catalyst for spiritual growth and maturity. So if you are not spiritually mature or living with someone or know someone who isn't spiritually mature, the, the number one way to grow spiritually is by reading the Bible. Now, if you would sit around in a small group with somebody and say, when have been periods of time in your life when you really were growing and you were aware of really growing, you would say stuff like, well, when I went through Dr. Young's trip too, uh, I, I was really growing. Or when I read, you know, some book or, you know, hopefully this will, will be a catalyst of your spiritual growth. Nine times out of 10, almost literally, it has to do with the good interaction with scripture. That is why the enemy of our souls, Satan, wants to keep you away from Scripture. And if he can't keep you away from it, he's going to help. And we talked about this last week. He's going to make you uh, overwhelmed with Scripture. I can't understand it. I don't get much out of it. It's old. It's hard to... and, and and, and therefore, you'll be prone to kind of put it aside and, instead of having that sense that the Lord Jesus had of, we don't live by food alone, we live by the, by the Word of God. So, uh, you know, we're on this quest throughout our lives to become better readers of Scripture. One of the ways to become a better reader of Scripture is to be sensitive to the kind of scripture you're reading. You know the difference inherently. You know the difference between the book of Psalms, which is Hebrew poetry, and the gospels, which are narratives about the life of Jesus Christ. You know there's a difference there. You know that there's a difference between Proverbs, those little two-line, a wise man, you know, does this, but a foolish man does that. You know that that's different from the epistle to the Romans, where Paul is writing a letter to a group of people explaining Christian doctrine to them. All right, when we come to the book of Revelation then, and these first eight verses are why I'm talking about this, we have a genre in the New Testament that is completely, well, no, not completely unique, but, but unique in a lot of important aspects. And one of the reasons why there are so many different approaches to the book of Revelation is because people are not sensitive to, to what John was doing when he first wrote it, all right? And I'll, I'll talk about this through the whole book. But we all know that 2,000 years ago, and we don't know if it was AD 60 or AD 90, that's what most people think, it was either AD 60-ish or 90-ish, this person in a specific place, the Isle of Patmos, Nadine, you were at Patmos? Yeah, you've seen it with your own eyes. You, saw, you sent me pictures, and sooner or later I'll show those. Uh, he wrote this to who? Who did, who did he write it to? John, who did he write it to? 
Yeah, it says it right in chapter one. He wrote it to a group of how many churches? Wonder why I picked seven. Okay, we'll think about that. Do you know, I, I never knew this. And it's, I always, when I learn something new, I don't learn a lot of new stuff. Mostly I'm just remembering stuff I forgot 10 years ago. Uh, but this week I learned something new. Do you know how many churches Paul wrote to? I never knew that before. He wrote to seven churches. Isn't that interesting that our Bible has seven churches that Paul addressed? Just like, not all the same, but John wrote to seven churches. There's significance to that. There's symbolic significance to the fact that it was seven and not five or 13. Okay? Even though that would have been luckier had he uh, written to 13 churches. Maybe not. Maybe not. All right. Uh, Okay, let's just read it and then we'll... uh, make some comments. But as I'm reading verses one through eight, I want you, first of all, to uh, look for God. There's a lot of stuff about God in here. And then I want you to see if you can pick out the kind of writing this is. And and I'll give you a hint. There's three kinds of writing. All right. Let's read it. uh, and, And then we'll talk about it. This is the English Standard Version uh, of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Man. Revelation chapter one, verses one through eight. All right, we'll save the question about God in a moment because that's where I want to end up. But first of all, who thinks you saw hints about what kind of book we're getting ready to read and study? Are you going to say something? Are you going to call me stupid? No, ma'am. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, see, no, I'm not. Never more. Nevermore. Prophecy. Prophecy. All right. Now, Bill just gave another one. Nadia said, Nadia, who is so intelligent and insightful. She, she, she noticed in verse three 
that we have John referring to this as, do you see it? Prophecy. All right. Now you've got your white piece of paper, book of Revelation in that notebook. You've got that open. Now feel free to circle that word. That's, this is why I did this so that you can highlight it, color it, make paper airplanes out of it. That'd be irreverent. But uh, whatever you want to do, make, make these notes. Circle that word. Underline it. I, I, I uh, underline mine in red. All right. Now, Bill noticed the, the second word in verse 1. The word is revelation. The Greek term is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. I talked about this last time. Uh, that is not only what is happening, God is revealing. Remember I, I told you a story about Babar, big sculpture on the cliff, sculpture of Babar, all the birds flew up on it to cover it up. Then they brought in Babar and Queen Celeste, his wife, blindfolded. And then at the count of three, they shot a shotgun or whatever they did. All the birds flew away to reveal or show something that had been hidden. Anybody watch Survivor? Kathleen and I watch Survivor. They play these memory games. Uh, you know, is it, the, is it whatever, whatever? Make your answer. And then the guy, whatever his name is, he says, reveal. And so something that was not evident, they show it, okay? So this book is something that God, think about this. This is part of my application for today even. This is something that God is showing somebody, and the somebody is his servants, as we'll see. Uh, we looked at this last time uh, in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gave Jesus something to show his servants. And he, 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 the, the revelation is about, in particular, the things that must soon take place. All right. So we have two genres so far. We have prophecy, and that word uh, is a, occurs in verse 3 at least, and it probably occurs a lot of other places. Yeah, in chapter 22, it occurs like four times, that word prophecy. Uh, but also we have this uh, word apocalypsis. Now, I know you haven't heard of this, maybe, and you're not stupid if you haven't, but there is a genre called prophetic not pathetic, but prophetic literature. Now, in the Old Testament, what would be some books of prophecy? Isaiah, Isaiah Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All right. Now, incidentally, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah play a major role in the book of Revelation. Major role. Which, which plays the most significant role in the book of Revelation? Daniel. Some suggest Ezekiel, but, but Daniel chapter 2 in, in Revelation chapter 1 is a big text. So Daniel's a big book. So if you're really an eager beaver, you could read the book of Daniel as well and pile that mysticism and confusion on top of the confusion you'll get from reading the book of Revelation. Anyway, all right. So yeah, that's prophetic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature, all right, apocalyptic literature is different from prophetic literature. And on page, I'm sorry, I didn't number these, on page five of these yellow sheets, 
I explain the difference between those two genres. Nobody challenged me on that term yet. You know what genre is? Genre is type, type of literature. So in your mind, say that with me, genre, okay? Yeah, genre, G-E-N-R-E. I think it's a French term. Uh, All right, page five, uh, down at the second half of the page, it says the literary context, and it's underlined. Uh, What's the point? Why is he saying this here? That's where I'm at in these notes. Genre, style or category of literature, kind of writing. Uh, Genre is defined by the conventions that a writer uses and that a reader needs to follow in order to make sense of a text in the way the writer intended. Different genres require different approaches to interpretation. Genre is defined by the rules that the writer who understands the genre uses. All right, now, do you see the little quote in the middle of the page here? The stars will fall from heaven. The sun will cease its shining. Do you see how I'm even reading that differently? Different tone of voice? Do you know why? Because this is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is prophecy on steroids. It's, It's pessimistic. Prophecy is optimistic. Prophecy says, you know, if you make some adjustments, uh, things will be better for you. Apocalyptic says, there's no more time for adjustments. It's over with, all right? Uh, The stars will fall from heaven. You can picture in your mind, use your imagination, thunderous explosions and flashes of light. Stars will fall from heaven. The sun will cease its shining. The moon will be turned to blood and fire and hail will fall from heaven. The rest of the country will have sunny intervals with scattered showers. (laughs) Do you you see the difference in genre there? All right. One is the last line is Joey Sulapec. And the first two lines is, you know, some hoary bearded prophet, you know, from the mountain. Okay. So, uh, There is a whole genre of apocalyptic literature. Uh, Lots of symbols in apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature tends to be more written, whereas prophecy tends to be more uh, verbal or spoken. You know this. Uh, Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak, O son of man, to the sons of Israel. It's a message. It's an oral message that Ezekiel delivers. That's prophecy, okay? Isaiah, the word of the Lord. And and, and so he he gives the prophecy. Apocalyptic is primarily uh, written down, and it's highly symbolic. Uh, In the book of Daniel, Daniel has dreams. We, We looked last week. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he wants somebody to interpret the dream. And the dream was full of big, titanic symbolism. There's monsters and mountains and oceans and the sun and the moon and the stars. It's all big cosmic stuff in apocalyptic literature. Now, if you're really interested in this, you will also be very interested to know that unlike Most apocalyptic literature, I'm not an expert on this, I've just read people who are. 
Most apocalyptic literature has episodes of symbolism, but then they'll have a guy say, I had a dream, and this is the interpretation of the dream, and there'll be a long narrative interpretation of it. There's a little bit of symbolism and a lot of interpretation of the symbol. Revelation is different from from that genre of apocalyptic literature in this one way that makes Revelation unique. Beginning in chapter 4, John has, you could call it, a vision. Remember, he, was in, he, was, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Behold, a door was opened into heaven, and on, off to the races we go, all the way to chapter 22. This vision that he had basically took place in, in, in an afternoon, took place in one day. But John invites us into this world that, of this vision that he saw. And we stay in that symbolic world for chapter 4 to chapter 22. We stay in that world the whole time. That never happens anywhere else in any other apocalyptic literature. That sustained... And here's what it's like. It's like going to a movie. Okay, Uh, what's the last movie anybody saw that you're willing to confess in Sunday school? Unbroken. All right, now Unbroken's not a great example uh, because that's a real guy and this stuff really happened to him, okay? But when you went there, when the previews are done and everybody's finished munching loudly on their popcorn and distracting everybody and you start getting into the movie, a good movie brings you into that world, and you kind of forget. Kathleen forgets immediately that she's sitting in a theater. She's transported. Ah, the sharks are going to bite my butt instead of theirs. And it's, it's real for her, okay? Uh, a better example, you, you remember the Hobbit movies, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? Those movies are based on books, all right? a story that a man, J.R.R. Tolkien, conceived out of his brilliant mind. He created a whole world, Middle Earth. He he created languages that were spoken in Middle Earth. He created history, mythology. There are these ancient saga poems that tell the story. He created all of that. And when you get into it, those of you who have, and I don't assume everybody has, but you are entering an imaginary world. And that is a lot like reading the book of Revelation. Uh, After really chapter three, when chapter four begins, we're brought into this symbolic world and we stay in it all the way through the whole book. And that is different about uh, John uh, compared to other prophetic or apocalyptic writings. Okay, I think that's all I need to say about that. Uh, All right, so we've identified two out of three. We talked about apocalyptic. We talked about prophetic literature, words of prophecy. Prophecy is a lot more common uh, in the Bible. There's there's words of prophecy in plenty of places in the Bible, Uh, but we haven't identified the third one. Here's a hint. Read uh, verse 4 and tell me what kind of book of the Bible that sounds like. Grace to you and peace. John, who is the author, 
to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace. Uh, Kathleen, you said it. Epistolary. Epistolary is not a guy with a handgun. Epistolary is a highfalutin term for a letter. All right, those of you who have King James Version or other older versions, the first epistle of Paul, I, I don't know where epistle comes from, the etymology of that term, but it's just a synonym for letter, okay? An epistle or a letter in the New Testament is a genre. It's a kind of writing. If you don't understand that, you will, and I love this. There's another guy in our grace group, not a stupid guy. I'm not using that word anymore, I promise. Old, fat, stupid, don't use those terms. This guy was saying something like, uh, well, he, he didn't understand, we're reading Philippians, and it says something like, Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to the saints who are in Philippi. He didn't know what was going on. He, he, he wasn't sure what that all meant. And it was a wonderful, eye-opening realization that if you don't know the rules of the genre, you have difficulty interpreting what you're reading. Okay? So, in an epistle, particularly in the first century, you would have the writer identify himself. You would have the recipients of the letter the, the addressees, uh, and then on from there. And that's what we have here in verse 4 of chapter 1. We have epistolary literature, the genre of an epistle. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, this is where you get overwhelmed, okay? Some people get overconfident, and they read their own understandings into the letter. And, and they can get lost very quickly, as I will when we get to chapter 6 and following. But uh, keep in mind, when, when you get lost in the forest and you have no idea what's happening, uh, and you just want to get to, even so, come Lord Jesus in chapter 22, you can step back and say, okay, you know this. You know now that this was written by a person, John, to seven actual churches that we could go visit, I wish we could, uh, on a circuit in what is now Turkey. John calls it Asia, seven churches that are in Asia. Everything in this book was given from God through Jesus Christ Jesus Christ in John 17, thank you, I've revealed all the stuff that you've given to me. God frequently gave his truth to Jesus who gave it to other people. God gave this revelation to Jesus, an angel, I don't know if it was God's angel or Jesus' angel, I can't tell from the language, angel gave it to John, John saw it in, the, in his imagination, this vision from God, he saw it. Then he wrote it down. Now, think about what we're dealing with here. In this book, and now you've, most of you have it, we are reading the words of a man who received revelation from God. John saw it in his mind as symbols. There's a woman 
standing on the sun, standing on whatever, clothed with the moon and the stars. There's a whore riding a beast in the desert. All these images, he saw them. Those images, because this was given to that group of churches in the first century, those images were designed to be understood at some level by those Christians in those churches in the first century. A beast coming up out of the ocean, a beast standing with one, an angel standing with a foot in the ocean and a foot on the land, a city with seven hills, smoke coming up forever and ever. They were supposed to understand, they understood what those symbols meant. So there was a symbol, a beast with seven heads, but that symbol represented something real in the world at that time. So not only do we have to understand the fact that it's a symbol, that we're not looking in the future for helicopters with locust tails that are shooting fiery hailstones at us in the the actual sky. They're, They're symbols that meant something to those people back then. We have to understand that. We have to realize they're symbols. It's not literal, okay? We have to figure out what's literal, what isn't. John saw the symbols. They meant something. Uh, Those people understood them, all right? And as we read about this, we read it with humility. We read it understanding. All we have is the text. We don't have all the... John didn't give us a bunch of footnotes. He he gives us a couple. Deep in the book, we'll see. He, He interprets some of this stuff. But he doesn't interpret it all. So we, we read it with humility. We go for the big ideas and not worry about the stuff that we, we can't readily understand. Uh, so hopefully that is giving you some orientation into what we're dealing with here. Uh, a vision given to seven real churches. Oh, now let me say this in, in, in conclusion, and we'll pick this up here next week. Uh, epistles are written to bring God's truth to bear on a certain group of people who were experiencing certain challenges at a particular time. Now, we just finished reading Philippians. We've read 2 Corinthians. Those two churches had different challenges. Which church had more problems, Corinth or Philippi? There were real places. There were real people. Remember in Philippians chapter 4, I beseech Euodia and I beseech Syntyche. Those were two real women sitting like just like you are that weren't getting along, okay? Now, what were the issues that these seven churches in Asia at, in the first century, what were they dealing with? Well, two things. Um, look right up the page in the yellow page here. There's a section on historical context. And the big thing for you to know in the historical context of the New Testament, really two big words. The first one is persecution. Just like many places in the world today, and unlike where we live, many people are the objects of hostility because they identify with Jesus Christ. And these churches in the first century were no different from them, not from us, very different from us. Uh, but no different from Christians living in Syria today or, uh, you know, 
you, you know what I'm saying. Uh, the other big issue for Christians in that part of the world, which is more relevant to us, is this tendency to have a polluted gospel, a gospel that was polluted with secular pagan ideas. And, subset of that one, I'm talking about purity here, uh, they were prone to compromise with the world. They were prone to love what the world loved and hate what the world hated. Not loving what God loves, hating what God hates. So again, I said it last week, I'll say it again. The purpose of this book, which is apocalyptic prophecy in an epistle, epistle, okay? The purpose of it is praise, purity, and perseverance. That's why this was given to them back there. And that's the context that we're going to use to interpret all this stuff that we're going to read. Now, What's, what are you up against? What are you up against? What do you need peace about? What troubles you? What disturbs you? What sucks the joy out of you? There are things. And God wants you to know what's in this book. He wants you to have grace and peace. And, and the major part of chapter one is to get you to look at your perspective from heaven, not from the chaotic, cacophonous din and fray that you're living in. The purpose of this is to bring you up and have you look at life from the perspective of the one who is and who was and who is to come. And Jesus Christ, the faithful witness who told the truth even though it killed him. The firstborn from the dead, even though it killed him, it didn't kill him forever. And because he rose from the dead, he's in charge. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this bizarre phrase in the middle of verse four, the seven spirits which are before the throne, what in the world? The Holy Spirit is only referred to as the seven spirits when he, singular, he is referred to in the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm, it's the seven Spirits or the sevenfold spirit, which is to say completely and fully whole and adequate for all of the stuff that is troubling you, for all of the idols that you have grown to love and protect and cherish instead of the living God. So, so this book is designed to give us that eternal perspective on a life that can seem pretty chaotic at times. All right, so now we're ready to see this majestic vision of the one that we're trying to follow, and we'll pick that up next week. Let's close in prayer. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah. So you're saying that when it refers to the seven spirits for the church, that is in essence the heavenly position of the Holy Spirit or the name? Yeah. The yeah. Now I'm saying that with, with humility and a considerable amount of time trying to run that down and figure it out. It's, it's, it's a difficult issue to understand, but I feel, in my own humble opinion, after reading several things about it, that's what I'm telling you that I think it is. I, I do think it's the Holy Spirit. I could talk to you after about why, and, and I, I think I'm right on that, but I'm saying that humbly. Uh, anything else? Any other stupid questions? See, stupid questions are good, okay? We all want to be stupid, seriously, because I'm going to look stupid again, uh, you know, very soon, I'm sure. All right, uh, thank you so much. Uh, May you not be overwhelmed. May you not be overconfident. And may you sense blessing uh, from hearing and obeying the stuff in this book. Lord, uh, so now for us all, Lord, I'm the first in the line that my view of life, my thoughts and feelings of my own circumstances and of the world are, are so often of my own imagination and not from your truth and your perspective. I need help with that, and I know you're prone and ready to give it from this book. So, Lord, as we move through it and get lost in the details, and I struggle to teach it, Please, Lord, in us all, may our, may our vision and regard for you grow. May our hunger for heaven increase. All like chapter 1 says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.